Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today, our guest once again is John Berveke. Um, For those of you guys who've been following the podcast, you know John is our most frequent guest and one of my absolute favorite people and someone who's had an immense impact on my work. So I reached out to John recently because I saw him being interviewed about the subject of science fiction and how it um, impacted the meaning crisis. And I'm a huge fan of science and speculative fiction, particularly fantasy fiction. And I was just intrigued to hear uh, John's perspective about it. And I thought it'd be grounds for uh, a conversation between us. Um, just some stuff I'd want to talk to him about that, um, you know, about meaning and, and how it's revealed through, uh, through discussing and looking at and reading um, these works. And I, I kind of actually thought originally that I was just gonna have this conversation privately with John, but I figured we'd record it and, and, and see what it came out. And I thought it might be kind of tangential to our main conversation, but I actually found that it created one of the most interesting conversations that we've had, that it really allowed us a lens that we could dive deep into many of the things that uh, we're both deeply concerned about and deeply interested in. So I think that um, everyone's gonna enjoy this conversation whether they're big uh, speculative fiction fans or not. Um, but if you are, uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this, especially, and you're going to you know, get some, you know, some interesting insight into what we're getting out of reading these, this type of work and, um, and maybe some, some recommendations on stuff that you might enjoy. So without further ado, um, join me for my conversation with John Ravakey. Thank you. So John, welcome once again to the Evolve Me Play podcast. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, for me too, Rafe. I always love being here. I love talking with you. Thank you. So, you know, we've been having a little bit of chat before we turned the camera on, gone through a lot of kind of catching up, but we're talking about the power of narrative. And that's one of the things that I want to talk to you about. Um, So this is a little bit off the sort of beaten path of the conversations we've had, but both of us share an interest in uh, speculative fiction. Yep. And very much. We haven't had a chance to really dig into that. Um, And I just like talking about it with people. So I figured, Hey, let's, let's have a chat about it. And I, I really enjoy the conversation you had with Damien Walter um, yeah. about the idea that that science fiction can can function to help us with meaning, but it has to get below the propositional layer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I just thought that would be a really interesting place to start because obviously that connects with my own work. And um, I don't know if I've told you this, but kind of my my journey into a lot of what I did actually in some ways starts with reading the Lord of the Rings. Mm, mm. Yeah. So when I was eight years old, my dad, my mom was at a yoga training in California and my dad drove us from, uh, from Northwest Washington all the way down to California in a car. And he had a friend of his and his friend would read uh, the fellowship of the ring 
on the road to entertain my dad and all the kids would be in the back and I, I fell in love with the story and so I came home um and that summer and my dad wasn't able to read it to me or wouldn't continue to read it to me but I had this mentor or I had this neighbor who kind of took on a mentor relationship with me and he started reading me the Lord of the Rings every night wow yeah um it was really profound for me and then I I had been I, I was basically tested as if I had made no progress through school up to that point, up through third grade because of my learning disabilities. And so I like my mom knew that I was actually like reading above grade level at home, but was unable to show it on tests. And so she made the decision to take me out and homeschool me. And my, my, my neighbor started uh, taking over some oh. of my homeschool. Wow. And so he read, the Lord of the Rings to me as a kind of way to motivate me to start doing stuff. Um, and then we also engaged in lots of rough and tumble play. Um, mm. And that was kind of, that was the thing that motivated me to work hard to overcome my learning disability because I had dyslexia. Mm. Mm. So I don't remember, you know, I was talking to my wife, I think I've gotten the timeline maybe a little bit compressed over the years, but from the Lord of the Rings, we ended up going into the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm. Mm. And then I also read David Eddings and, you know, like a bunch of other uh, speculative fiction, but it was through the Lord of the Rings that I discovered mythology. And so mm -hmm. then I went through the Greek myths and then the Norse myths. And then I got interested in my, my Celtic heritage and got into all the Irish myths. Right. Right. And that me into an interest in, in, in culture and anthropology. And so by the time I was 13 years old, I was consuming like every, every uh, anthropology book in the local library. So that was like, you know, a big part of, of how all this came like a lot of the, the 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 science and philosophy behind what we do physically has been really inflected by this this intellectual path that starts with introduction to the Lord of the Rings. Mm, mm. Um, and then and then when I discovered parkour at twelve years old, like I realized that like I couldn't really be Aragorn, right? <laughs> right? Like yeah. there were there were no orcs out there, there were no dragons yeah. out there. Yeah. And so when I saw David Bell jumping from building to building, what it felt like to me was as if someone had said like, oh yeah, there are dragons out there. They just don't look like what you read in the story. Right, right, right. right. That's cool. You look That's like cool. this confrontation with the self. And so for me, there's this idea of the, of the, of the, of the heroic self, which then, you know, was picked up when I, when I found Jordan Peterson's work and sort of built right. up on that. So that was my history with, with speculative fiction. I, I think there's something really deep in how these stories have become so important to us and how they reflect a lot of the, our history of thinking about meaning. Um, yeah. I sent you that quote the other day, uh, if God is dead, fantasy is the graveyard, right? Or yeah. speculative fiction. Graveyard. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I just wanted to, uh, to, sh to share that little bit of the story and then just ask you like, how has speculative fiction kind of impacted your trajectory and growth into thinking about these things? Uh, well, like I said to Damien, it, uh, it was a science fiction book that blew me out of uh, the fundamentalist Christianity that I've been brought up in. Um, yeah. It was a, a really, it's a classic book by Roger Zelazny, uh, who was the, part of the next wave, right? Or the new wave, sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, w to my mind, one of the best is a writer. He's, he was a wordsmith. Um, it's called Lord of Light. And um, yeah, it introduced me to to uh, to mythology, Hindu mythology was the first mythology, yeah. and then also to Buddhist philosophy because he he actually takes on the role of the Buddha and one of one of the roles he plays uh, he plays, and so 
And then I, I, I very quickly around the same time read The Lord of the Rings and I read uh, uh, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies, which introduced me to Young. And then I also read um, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And so those books like just sort of uh, really, really opened me up. Pardon me? How old were you at this time? Um, so that's about 15 to 19. For those four years I'm reading that stuff and consuming a lot of it. Um, and what, I mean, Lord of the Rings was very important to me. Um, Hesse was very important because, you know, Hesse is, he's, he's, in, he's in therapy with Jung when he's writing Siddhartha. So the Jungian stuff is coming through, but also I'm getting introduced to Vedanta, aspects of Buddhism and mysticism as, you know, um, as, as something transformative. Um, th those books are all meaning a lot to me. But the thing about, the, the reason why Lord of Light stuck with me for so long, um, I, I've ended up re reading it a couple times. Uh, um, over October, I actually read the last book that Rogers of Lasdy wrote called uh, Lonesome Night in October. Uh, and it, each chapter is a day of October. And so you read it and it ends on Halloween. And so that was a real treat for me because I'd never, I, I didn't know that he'd written this book because he died in 93. And I thought I'd read all the Zelazny. And then I found this book that it was actually his last book he wrote on his own. And it was, that was a real treat for me. But the thing about Zelazny, and this is where it starts to get more philosophical and more conversation, is the interesting thing about it. And this is what, I mean, I think all of science fiction, at least after, you know, uh, the, the golden age, but all science fiction is um, trying to do this. But Zelazny made it, often explicit in his work, and he made it super explicit in Lord of Light, is it's simultaneously, it's doing this weird thing. It's reaching back into, you know, what, let's call it religious mythology, because it's very clear that's what it is in Zelazny, right? But but it's, it's, all, it's trying to reach forward into the scientific worldview. It's got this weird task of trying to somehow um, revivify mythology and situate it within um, a scientific world route. And if you, if you think about it, that's a precursor to my whole project, right? It's a precursor mm -hmm. of how do we take these, these, these symbols and metaphors and myths and all this meaning-making machinery uh, and, and it's enmeshed with, with ritual and transformation. And how do we, how do we uh, put it back into uh, the scientific worldview? So I've, I, I've, I've tended to, I mean, you know, science fiction is a broad field, speculative fiction even broader. Um, but that's the, that's the genre that I've tended to be really interested in when, uh, when, when science fiction writers are trying to do that bridging. Sometimes, of course, they're doing it implicitly. They're taking sort of archetypal figures and they're resituating them in, you know, the modern worldview. And, and they can be really sophisticated or they can be really obvious, like the Avengers, right? When Thor is literally Thor and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but... You know, in, in, in the hands of some of the people, you know, like uh, uh, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, I think of, um, uh, was it Stephen? I can't remember. Is it Stephen Brusk? He wrote To Rain in Hell. He was a sort of a uh, somebody. I, I know it's the first time yeah. Him, but yeah. Yeah. That, so he, 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 he redoes the, uh, the, the sort of Judeo Christian creation myth. Um, yeah. It's, it, like that book is compelling. Every time I pick that book up, I read it, like cover, cover to cover. Right. Mm -hmm. So Brust, and uh, I think that's his name. I can't believe I've forgotten it. Um, I, I apologize if I've spoken his name incorrectly. 
Roger's last thing. I'm really interested in figures who are doing uh, that kind of thing. Now, of course, all of the Inklings were doing that. I mean, I've read, I've read Tolkien, I've read Lewis, I've read Williams, um, uh, but they're doing it very implicitly. Barfield is more, more philosophically explicit. That trying to, they're all trying to figure out how can we bring myth into the modern age. Now they all became Christian apologists. And, and maybe you are becoming one too, <laughs> uh, but at least a non-theist Christian. Uh, but um, I, I was interested in somebody who was doing it. Uh, I've been interested. In, I, I, obviously, I like that framework. I read it. But the fact that I was introduced by, to it by Roger Zelazny, and it was specifically not a Christian framework, but a Hindu mm -hmm. Buddhist one, and it was something that was taking me out of Christianity, has made me like, I want, I, I want, I want something more than what I saw in Lewis and in Barfield and in Williams and in Tolkien. Did that make sense? The, the point yeah, I'm trying to make? Yeah, it's very interesting because I think we can, uh, you seem to be interested at the, at the intersection of fantasy and science fiction, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> fantasy and science fiction, that's where Zelazny liked to write it. The thing about Lord of Light is it, is a, it and it's, it's a brilliant piece of work for that. You can read it and you can read it consistently as a science fiction novel, and you can read it and read it consistently as a fantasy novel. It's like, and you can't, and it reminds me of Plotinus, the way the, the, the spiritual exercise and the argumentation are inseparable from, from each other. But if you'll allow, I agree with what you said, but what I'm saying, why I'm bringing that out is, if you allow fantasy to mean something more than just entertainment, just you know, counterfactual universes where people play around, for me, it's yeah. got to be, it's got to be, it's got to be something. I mean, I'm deeply, I've been deeply impressed. I think I mentioned it with Damien by Tolkien's recovery theory, that the point mm -hmm. of all this fiction is to recover the world we're in, not to escape to another world that we can actually never live in. Yeah. So um, in some sense, you, I think when I say fantasy versus science fiction, the way I'm looking at that is that you can look at, at, at fantasy fiction as in some sense looking back towards yeah. mythology and towards a yeah. pre-modern yeah. worldview. Yeah. And you can yeah. still look at science fiction as to say it's going forward. But then there's these places where, where there's an intentional sort of uh, uh, explicit sort of melding of the two, where you're challenged Perfect. to sort of see the two things yeah. together. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading a novel right now by Larry Correa called um, the, the House of Assassins. And it's, it's, it's very clearly like it's a fantasy novel with a science fiction structure underneath it and right. uh, it's it's not it's a good novel it's it's not one of the more profound ones but i think a more profound version is the novel that i brought up uh with you before which is r scott baker's uh second apocalypse series mm. um who i mentioned at the beginning of this and uh he's also a, a philosophy you know all but phd from ontario so you know right. kind yeah, of in your, yeah. in your backyard yeah yeah um, yeah and, I, and i've read some uh, of them yeah yeah so i mean his you know he 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 sets his world in a uh, in a um, it's kind of like a Bronze Age, more m like Persian yeah. kind of uh, yeah. Mediterranean yeah. type world. Um, but at the same time, there's a there's a there's a very intentional conflict with like essentially an alien race that represent modernity. Yeah. Right. And represent yeah. and so you have people who are magicians, right? Who, who use magic. And then you have people who use techni, which is technology. Yeah. And yeah, then you have these yeah. weird places where they where they conflict and interact. Yeah. And right. he's very 
very intentionally playing with the idea of meaning. And, and one of the things he talks about is that um, he, he's essentially taking the Tolkienian idea and, and sort of inverting it, right? And I, I'm more compelled by Tolkien's moral vision, ethical vision, but I think it's very interesting what, what Baker is trying to do because he's saying essentially that, um, that we, we are dislocated, you know, because of the meaning crisis, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's words, but essentially that's what he's talking about. We have this sense of dislocation from a world where meaning is uh, explicit in the world. That the meaning of thing is yep. foundational rather than sort of uh, relative, and we can right. just decide what we want. Um, and that that we had this world in some sense before the Enlightenment, and we we are we still miss it. But what he would, but he what he's sort of trying to do with that series is to show that that world is actually horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it, that it's that it's a that uh, that that's a world where you can. You can believe at the most fundamental level of being that men are superior to women, right? And that yes. can be structural to the way that everyone in society thinks, yeah. or that snakes are sacred and pigs are profane, yes. and that yeah. this type of thing actually uh, is um, that our longing for that can be misleading in a way. Yeah, and very much. I mean, and that and was so, a point. That, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just so going to say. Go, no, you go ahead. You go. Ahead. <laughs> he, he's trying to confront us with the fact that the thing that we're going, we're looking to go back to, has a lot of terrifying things within it. Yeah, yeah. But also, yeah. he confronts us with where we're going is horrifying as well. Yeah. yeah. So he confronts this this idea of of modernity where where meaning is completely gone, uh, as also horrifying. So it's so I. I uh, so yeah, that, that that kind of fits right in that 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 like how yeah. do we ask these questions? So go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, that idea about um, you know be, be, being caught between them. I, I, I like that idea. Uh, I mean, like I said, I think. I think uh, there's a reason why, like, like I said, I think it's it's constant with the reason why Zelazny really spoke to me because um, there's a sense in which the book is doing that too because Lord of Light, it's basically a world in which people have used technology but also personal transformation and some of them have, are, have set themselves up as the god of the Hindu pantheon. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then what Zelazny captures is the ambivalence towards that because it's a world, it's the world of myth restored and so there's a part of us that longs for that and you know and but then the main character sam is basically leading a rebellion against the gods um but he doesn't do as much for the second point it doesn't show as much the horror of the scientific world but he shows like that there were reasons why we left that world carl sagan's demon haunted world right that we left the demon haunted world because it was haunted with demons right like and, and that's a really rough place to live um, and, you know, it, it, it often explains why certain religions will sweep an area, right? It's because uh, I was talking to a guy at a conference and he talked about this huge area of Africa in which Christianity just swept through it. And you're thinking, really, why? And he said, he sw it swept through it because with one God and Christ, 
you get rid of all the demons. You exercise the whole, all, yeah, the demon haunted world is removed and it's replaced with a world that's ultimately intelligible, redeemable, that has a history. And that people like, <gasps> that's like, that, that's very liberating for them. And so, yeah, we talk about, you know, and neo-paganism is a big thing right now and neo-shamanism and people talk about that, but we forget, we forget. Um, and that's part of my criticism of romanticism, as you know, we forget the horrors, right? We forget the demon haunted world. I like the fact that you've also got that, uh, the world of Techne, and I'm reading campaign now right now, Techne and Magic, uh, and that world, right? Um, that world is also, well, that's the world of nihilism and the meaning crisis. And so for me, I mean, the literature resonates with me because that's the Scylla and Charybdis that I'm trying to steer my, my life between. The oh, th these are mythological entities. So here we go, it's totally relevant. So Scylla and Charybdis, I think it's in, is it Jason and the Argonauts or is it Ulysses? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Odysseus. There's the two monsters that he has to sail between. If, if you go either direction, you fall, you, you're destroyed. I think it's Odysseus, right? I think. Uh, yeah, it's one of those Greek sailors. It's, it's, Jason, it's either Jason. I think it's Odysseus, though. Um, and so uh, trying to find a way in which uh, we can do. So my, my strategy has tried to be, well, can I dig down to the science? and dig down into the myth where I can get the science and the myth to talk to each other again. That, so I've been trying to dig underneath uh, to try and find the common ground laying at the depths. Um, but I think there's value in that literature. Sorry, I'm talking too much, but there's value in that literature in getting people, to, I mean, especially that, experience both horrors, right? The horror of nostalgia and the horror of utopianism. That's often how I phrase it, right? We have these yeah. two horrors that we like, we need a horror to relieve us of the of nostalgia, and we need a horror to relieve us of utopia. Um, and for all the dystopian literature that's out there right now, we still keep trying to get the utopias. That's another reason why I was really attracted to New Wave, because New Wave was the science fiction that first started to criticize, right, the, the sort of utopianism and the march of of science that was you got in sort of the classic age. Yeah, it, it's interesting because like. Like I said earlier, like I would still rank the Lord of the Ring. Uh, I didn't say this, but I would rank the Lord of the Rings as the most, the most important fiction or the most important fantasy so speculative novel, right? I think it, yeah. it, for me, anyways, it, it has the most compelling moral vision. And I'd actually put Harry Potter up there. And I think that Harry Potter is, um, is a is a striking work of Christian apologetics by someone who I don't think realized that they wrote a novel of Christian apologetics. Yeah. It's like Steven Spielberg did an, the, the greatest allegory of Jesus with E.T. and not realizing yeah. he'd done it. It's like, yeah, you, yeah. you did face Jesus. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> you really did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, after I read, after I encountered Peterson, I went back and I reread the whole Harry Potter series. And I was like, oh, Harry's Christ. Like, yeah. you know, and yeah. his death and resurrection and the fact that, that, that the thing that redeems him is the capacity to love. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and but it's it's profound because, um, well, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know. We should come back to this because it's interesting. I think it's very interesting that if we look at, you know, if 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 the Lord of the Rings is the great, you know, sort of landmark work of speculative fiction of the 20th century, it's written by a by a Christian 
who is self-acknowledged and is coming, he's sort of confronting the modern world and his attachment to Christianity through his, his, his fiction. And he creates a Christ figure in Frodo and that Christ figure fails, mm -hmm. right? And it is only through um, providence that the world is saved, mm -hmm. right? And then there's like this whole argument for like deontological moral reasoning that's also deep within the Lord of the Rings, which I think is really interesting. Um, we look at Harry, Harry is not Christ because he's not a, he's not, he's not a, per, he's not a person who's perfect in his generations, right? Harry is a flawed, angry young man, um, but he succeeds as Christ succeeded. Yeah. Right. In the end, Harry is redeemed because he is able to choose completely the Christ-like path, right? He's able to sacrifice himself without any, you know, completely selflessly um, for the good of, of the, the world, right? Um, whereas Frodo fails at that, right? And it is only through the mercy that Frodo had shown to, to oh, Gollum oh. that his failure is redeemed. The Tolkien's also bringing out another important point, right? Tolkien's, yeah. I mean, Tolkien and, and Whitehead made this very clear that the idea that evil is ultimately self-destructive and that mm -hmm. the idea yes. that the redemption of the world and the self-destruction of evil have to be sort of co-determined together. That's what's happening, right? Um, and they, they, I mean, they're literally on the precipice together. And it's like very obvious symbolism. It's like, oh yes, I get this. But nevertheless, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It was, it's, what I find really ironic about the Tolkien thing is the absence of religion from that book. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. It's very, uh, yeah, because of course there's something like religion in the Narnia Chronicles because there's Aslan and the following mm -hmm. of Aslan, right? Uh, but yeah, religion is actually absent. So I wanted Nobody to bring up, I wanted to bring up the, to my mind, the contrast book to Tolkien because that may spark yeah. something between us, right? Because I think there's another great speculative work of fiction, uh, and, and it's considered that many people consider it the masterpiece of science fiction, and it did a similar thing. Of reaching back and reaching forward in this, you know, really wonderfully artistic, ambiguous way, and that's Dune, yeah, and, and, right? And, and and the thing about Dune, which is interesting, uh, Dune is not written as Christian apologetics, and what he's trying to do, Herbert, right, is he's trying to undermine, right, the heroic narrative, right, uh, specifically, and and that and so he's writing this huge thing, and he's he's drawing all of this in, and then he's trying to do this huge. Uh, inversion on it, um, which I thought was real. I, I like. I Dune is Dune is. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Dune is a brilliant masterpiece, and I've read it a couple times. But Herbert is not a great writer, right? He, like right, Zelazny is a great writer, um, like like a, a gifted writer. Herbert isn't, but but the story is just so like, right? The world is the star. So, so what do you think about that? You like you've got these you've got these two different they're 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 almost like to my mind they're almost like mirror opposites of each other. You've got Tolkien, right? And Tolkien represents, as you said very clearly, I agree with you. There's a Christian apology going there, and there is you know the the sacred mythology. It's a heroic narrative, right? And then you've got Dune, in, but religion is absent. And then you've got Dune where religion is like everywhere, like and people are tripping out and altered states of consciousness all over the place. And like, yeah, right. And, but what, but, but, but he, but he, what he's trying to do is actually subvert the Christ metaphor and, and subvert the her, heroic narrative. So, so like, it's interesting that the, we, the, we have these two things to my mind, they're, they, 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 they should be put in a room and made to talk to each other. 
I think that's what Baker does in the second yeah. apocalypse. Like they're the second apocalypse uh, series. Like if you look at kind of the beats of the story, um, the first one is very much like it's very cl- uh, closely related to Dune, right? Right, right, right. And then the second series is very closely related to to um, to the Lord of the Rings. Oh. And, I mean, there you can you can look at the characters and how they represent both, and there are there are beats that are taken from both stories in in in, in both directions. But um, and he's very explicit about the fact that he's doing this, which is interesting because, like, there's you talk about the the critique of the utopianism or nostalgia of of Tolkien, and I think that Tolkien's not that nostalgic, right? He's pointing backwards, but he's not pointing backwards in a utopian fashion. Mm. But the the desire that he awakens in people then creates a stream of fiction that that doesn't have the nuance and the 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 like the world that Tol- that Tolkien creates is is a tragic world, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of suffering, and and Tolkien's experience in the uh, World War One, like that, plays into that world. So. It, you know, people talk about it as this like binary black and white, like good triumphs over evil type novel, but it's it's really yeah. not at all, right? There's a lot of like, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line between good and evil runs down every human heart. Boromir, right, has evil overcome his heart, but ultimately is redeemed. And Frodo, right. you know, kind of goes through the same journey. Ultimately, he can't resist the, the journey of the ring. This is not a like a, the good guys just triumph, right? No, um, no. And, and even, you know, and, and Tolkien struggled with the orcs, right? Because he created something that was evil, but that was conscious. And that, that but even with the orcs and the, you know, the, the, there's these moments where there's a humanity that shines through in them. Yeah. Which is lost in a lot of the, the, the successor things. Yes, yes. So like yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's uh, sometimes we, I feel like artists often create uh mimickers who don't understand as deeply what they're coming from i think that's inevitable i think that's inevitable but then there's like another generation that comes along that looks back at those and is able to sort of look at where everything that they came from as well and bring something in so so baker baker gives us a lot of the story beats a lot of characters i mean calhoun is you know, uh, he, he has a probability trance that's very much like, you know, and essentially there's the thousandfold thought, which is like the, you know, the, 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 what is it, a pre ability to see the future of, of, Precog- of uh, yeah. the precognition of, uh, of Paul Atreides. Um, but he knows what he's playing with and he has a lot of intention about what he's doing and bringing these things together. And, um, and then he's also bringing in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and like there are there are ways in which he uses phrases in in the the, the conflicts that happen that are very much you like he has this uh, he says death came swirling down, right? And he'll say that repeatedly, and it has this beat and this rhythm through uh, the 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 battle sections that he uses, um, and so you can see how that's it's not from the Odyssey, but he's using the same type of formula. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so you see where that comes from, but but what's interesting to me is that I think in many ways, for me, that series is the most sophisticated sort of attempt to grapple with these things, but ultimately it fails as a moral yeah. vision because it yeah. points no direction forward. Whereas for me, I feel like when I encountered Peterson and then when I encountered you, you guys are, are, are struggling with the same questions that Baker is struggling with. 
but you find a answer that actually points towards a way that we can grow and overcome it. Whereas Baker basically, in my opinion, ends up just laying the problem in the most brutal way that you can in front of yeah. you. And I yeah. think there's something very valuable about that though. There is. I mean, great works of art are largely about problem finding, right? And formulating, yeah. not about problem solving. So I'll say something provocative then. Um, it does, I mean, does that, I, I, you've inspired me. I, I, I've read, I think the first two books of the, uh, of, so I've got to go back and take them out and go through them again. I was all, I also started reading them when, uh, when my marriage had ended and I was in a dark place. So I had to stop reading them because it was getting very, very dark. Yeah, it was like, dark. This, is, this is not helping. This is very dark. <laughs> so yeah. And so now that there's a lot more light in my life, uh, perhaps I should go back. But here's what I'm going to say that's provocative. And this is, uh, you know, and I, and I know you're going to disagree, but we, we, we love each other. And so we're going to we're going to work on it. I mean, I think that what that shows is that there isn't resolution to that problem on the narrative level. It doesn't mean the narrative won't play a role, but I don't think the resolution can be resolved narratively. That's what I, I think. I, I agree with you. This, this is a conversation that we had kind of off the air. I think maybe yeah. we've had a few times, but, but like you've said in conversation, I think with Jonathan Peugeot, yeah. that your proposal is that, um, that meaning isn't recovered by recovering our narratives. That's it's right. recovered dialogue. Yeah, by dialogos. Dialogos is more primordial. It's what enlivens narrative and turns it from chronology into drama. And it is post-narrative in that it is that which takes us up into the, 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 the post-narrative of the mystical experience. And so dialogue and di dialogos and dialectic, um, I think, uh, are more encompassing and therefore get are more towards the fundamental grammar of what we need um, in order to get the transformation. Uh, yeah, I, I, I still stand by that argument. Yes. Yeah. So... So then Pajot's sort of counter argument is that, I mean, at the center of what we are is narrative. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I'll, I'll, this isn't precisely Pajot's argument because I don't understand Pajot's argument precisely, right? So there's a little bit of what I think he's trying to say and also I'll, the way I'll that I look at it. I'll try and supplement okay. that we, we, we but, steal as much as possible. So some time ago, I was thinking about the, the self, right? And yeah. I was thinking about this, this, I, this, this idea that we have a narrative self and we have a biological self mm -hmm. and that either can be broken. And if either is broken, that what exists post the break is no longer the self as it was. So yes. if, if you wake up with total amnesia and everything about your personality is the same, but you do not have the story of who you were up until that moment, essentially it's as if an identical twin to your previous self is born at that moment. Right? Um, it's not you anymore. And on the same time, you can retain your story, but if you have a major brain change, you're actually a different person. So Phineas Gage had a, yep. had a well, railroad spike struck yeah. through his head and he's a different person. He remembers who he was, but he's not that person anymore. Yep. And so I had this realization, okay, we, we, are, we are the combination of a narrative and a biology. And either of those can have a hard death, like total amnesia or a major brain trauma. But in fact, we're always dying because our narratives are always being updated and always being, pieces are being lost, pieces are being reframed. And then also our biology, right? Like I don't have the cells that I had seven years ago. Yeah, totally. right? my, my gene expression is different. You know, I have gray hairs in my beard. Um, 
So we, we are always in a process of dying and being revivified. So mm -hmm. I, I thought that was very interesting. But the reason that I bring that up is because you experience the world as a story, right? You experience yourself through narrative. And so the, the way that I interpret what Peugeot is saying is that at the center of your experience has to be a narrative. And if that narrative isn't well articulated, it doesn't contain all the archetypal elements in some sort of correct proportion, then you're going to have a sense of meaninglessness. You're going to have a sense uh, and, and your, your behavior is probably not going to be good at optimizing itself. And this is, I think, also P Peterson's argument and why he places narrative so high. Like, you know, I remember one before I met you, I was listening to one of your interviews and you're asking like, where are the practices in the pragmatic Christianity of Peterson? And, you know, so Pajot is like on one end where he's fully committed to the story. Peterson seems like he's, he's yeah. committed to the story without, he, he's, to me, and this is a frustration that I have, like listening, I listen to Pajot and, uh, and, and Stephen Wolford from Rationality Rules. It's like, you can think in a rational materialist frame and you can think in like a phenomenological frame and you might not, or we don't necessarily have a way to make them perfectly congruent. And the set of claims that are justifiable within the, those different frames are not the same. And a lot of times what happens is that someone tries to justify a claim here when they're really moved by something over here or vice versa. And they don't, people are just not making it explicit enough. This is where I'm reasoning from. And I think this is kind of what Peterson's trying to do is trying to say, think about these problems from a rational materialist perspective. Think about these problems from a, you know, pragmatic phenomenological type perspective. You know, I don't know if I have the, the philosophy perfectly aligned there, but it's something like that. And, yeah. uh, but, but he, but I get the sense that Peterson is softballing what that actually means towards the Christian side of the argument, because he's, he's really saying there's a large spectrum of reality and thinking about reality in which you have to let go of your claims. And I think that that's implicit in his argument or even inexplicit in his argument, but when he's at Liberty University, he doesn't state it as clearly as he could. Um, but I, I could be wrong there. I could, you know, maybe I'm projecting my own way of, 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 of doing that. But with Peugeot, I feel like he's saying the phenomenological thing is the fundamental reality that you experience and therefore it has premacy. And with yeah, I, Peterson, I don't know which one you're actually saying has premacy. I, that's, that's, I think that's astute. And given that you are a, a very strong uh, Peterson sympathist, it's good that I get to talk to you about this because um, if I was to just say this, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get ganged up on. Uh, uh, but I, I find Jonathan is clear to me that he gives priority to the phenomenological. Um, and um, I find that ultimately problematic. Uh, and I've studied phenomenology very deeply uh, because phenomenology has problems. And this is why you've got the response of, of Sparrow. You've got the response of Harmon. All, all the people that are into speculative realism is because it's hard to stop phenomenology from becoming a form of philosophical idealism, where everything is just somehow a mental thing. 
Like the world has to have non-mental aspects to it. If like, to me, that's a, that's a bedrock thing. If you want to, and I don't, I, I like, I, I don't know, like, see, well, I'm doing too many things in my head right now, right? Okay, so I, I'm just worried that I'm being unfair to Jonathan. So I'll, I'll try to come back and, and be fair to him. But right, if you don't have um, uh, non-mental properties that are real in the sense of causal and effective, you're going to get locked into idealism. And then the problem I have with idealism is there is there is no good argument that prevents it from becoming solipsism. And then there's no good argument for that prevents that from becoming solipsistic skepticism. And that's the hell of the meaning crisis. So for me, phenomenology, and I love phenomenology, it's deeply, deeply important to 4E cognitive science, deeply, you know, deeply. Um, and so I read it deeply and I reflect on it and, you know, and Dan Chappie and I are constantly, so that, that's where I'm coming from. I'm not just over there pointing a finger. I practice it, you know, Don Idy's experimental phenomenology. But phenomenology has this problem that I just outlined. You need, you need things outside. And what's the discourse we have for trying to get outside the phenomenological to find the causal things outside the phenomenological that gives the world its real independence and acts as the counterbalance to solipsism and skepticism? It's science. That's what yeah. science is as a method, right? Mm -hmm. And, 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 and then the problem I have with rationality rules for me is, I mean, I, this will sound a little bit harsh, but his science is really inadequate. His science does not include cognitive science. He's, he doesn't get that he does not have a scientific account of how science is generated. He has no ontology of science and rationality. He doesn't say how these things exist or where they exist. He just assumes them as ontological primitives without telling me how in the hell they actually fit into his scientific materialistic worldview. And so I find the purely phenomenological drops into a hole and the purely rational materialistic drops into a hole, which is very much like what we've been talking about already. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, that's awesome because so what is what is being portrayed in the story of what, what, what is this kind of thing that is being revealed through science fiction? We have to recover something from a phenomenological sort of yeah. worldview centric um, uh, or experienced worldview centric yeah. meaningful place. And yet that somehow has to be congruent with modernization, right? Like even if you talk about Tolkien, right? Tolkien's super anti-modernization, like Mordor is industrialism, right? Yeah, totally, totally. And, and yet the there is a sense of meaning that is being lost from his world, right? The 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 arcane elements are slowly leaking away and giving yeah. rise to the age of man as as the third age ends, right? So there there is a, there is a sense that Tolkien is is pointing towards something has to happen after this and it has to be it has to be it has to let go of of the elves yeah right? the magic goes away i mean that magic goes away to the larry niven book right the magic goes away yeah. um and, and and you know and that's the weberian theme about the, the weberian theme about the disenchantment of the world but here's the thing and to, to, to circle back around to peterson like i think narr narrative only exists in the phenomenological world and mm -hmm. what the scientific world says is no narrative. 
And the only thing that can bridge between them, right, is actually Dialogos. That's my argument. Okay. Because, right, narrative, I mean, that it isn't coincidence. And this is where I don't want to feel unfair to Jonathan. I think he is astonishingly brilliant, right? And I want everybody to hear that from me. Yeah. And, you know, and whenever I have discussions. Is what you're, like, I would say that we need his insights. Totally, totally, totally. And I, I, and, and I want to be in continual dialogos with him because mm -hmm. it is beneficial to be so. That being said, I don't think there's a coincidence that he is deeply attached to narrative and phenomenology, right? Because they, like, they're locked like this together. And I think, and, you know, and I, and I argue in this series, I think narrative is very much important for developing your perspectival knowing so that you attain personhood, right? So for transforming your salience landscaping so that it becomes a moral landscape so that you become a person. I clearly think, and I clearly argue that narrative is important for that. But I don't think that the, the response to the meaning crisis, which is like what we're talking about here, which is, well, what, what actually bridges between the narrative phenomenological and the non-narrative science, science, right? Scientific. I, I think it's dialogos. Um, and, and because it, 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 it gives us the connection to distributed cognition that is so central to science and right and, and picking up on all of those aspects of cognition. But it also gives us, well, it, there's, a, there's, there, there's the aspect of drama in Dialogos in which people are taking up roles and perspectives and positions that is, well, like I said, it makes narrative possible. And so I see Dialogos as giving us access to both while also allowing us to transcend both. Uh, like, with the, like I said, in the, in the mystical experiences people have of self-transcendence. When you're in the flow state, when you're doing parkour in the woods, you're, 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 you're not in a narrative frame. I mean, you've got a background narrative of your life, but the, what you're doing there, I mean, that's one of the classic features of flow, right? Um, so I think, but, but, but there's something dialogical about when you're doing parkour right? You're in, you're in dialogue with your environment, that the language of dialogue comes naturally. Um, and so uh, I think for me, that's what I mean when I, I'm, criti I'm critical uh, of, of Jordan, because I think I find, it seems to me, I want to be really careful, like he equivocates between these two worlds and just moves between them and remains ambiguous between them. Yeah, and I, agree. I, 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 I Okay, and I don't think ambiguity is the, the, the way to resolve it. I think, and I don't think narrative will do it either. I don't think a purely, uh, you, know, uh, you know, rationality rules approach will do it either. That's, no, it that's doesn't. yeah, I mean, so, oh man. I feel like we've kind of let off a bomb where like a lot of the things that you and I are talking together are sort of like flying in the yeah, wind yeah, now. Yeah, and yeah. The table and so many directions we can go here, which is very interesting to me. But I'm trying to trying to bring it back because like, some please. of this stuff is really profound and also like it might have like flown over someone's head, right? Because you know it just came out really fast. But so in in Maps of Meaning, at the beginning of Peterson's book, he says the world can be construed in two ways as a form for action and as a place, uh, a place of objects. Mm -hmm. 
one of those is the domain of science. The world is a place of objects. The other yep. is is the domain of literature, religion, art, narrative. Yep. yep. Right. And and so he he basically makes the case that we that we that we have to recover meaning by returning to these sources, mm-hmm. and and as we're talking about um, as we're talking about science fiction and fantasy, we also see this this sort of tension between a science like a science fiction worldview where we're looking at the world as a place of objects, right? Like what is hard science fiction about? It's about exploring deeply the technical aspects yep. of, 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 a, of a worldview versus, you know, like really, really like sort of super fantasy fantasy, like objects become almost ephemeral, right? Yep. And yep. and so we're, and then you have these amazing works like Baker or Zelazny where they're sort of like forcing us to look, can we can we bounce between these levels? Yeah. Yep. And, and I... I, uh, you said that with phenomenology, you don't see how it doesn't collapse into idealism, right? Yeah, Which is the idea yeah. that the ideas proceed. And like I, this conversation that you, you've had with, uh, with, with Peugeot and a few others where this is, you guys talk about, um, emergence and emanation. Yep. yep. And that, that's, that's, I, I'd like to unpack that language a little bit, but in some sense, like emergence, we can look at as I believe, if I am understanding correctly, the emergence is the thing that comes up from the material, mm-hmm. right? So the material organizes itself into things. Yep. And therefore, yep. we can see something as emergent. You know, for a hard materialist, you might want to argue that everything is emergent. Consciousness is an emergent function of, of yep. atoms yep. bouncing around in a certain way. And that's just a random uh, causal loop that goes back to the Big Bang. There's no yep. meaning to it. Um, and what what uh, J.P. Marceau and Jonathan Pajot, et cetera, are arguing is that is that there is this this thing above that is being reflected down. Yep. Yep. They, I mean, that's yeah. Which is a Christian mm-hmm. version of Neoplatonism. Yeah. 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 Well, so you're like you've talked about the idos, right? Yep. 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 The, the structural yep. functional organization of something. Totally. Totally. And so 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 once once a bird exists in some sense. It is both this emergent thing, but it is also this template, and a, a thing that we can understand yeah, potentially. Yeah, I mean, so it's 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 kind of a, a Neoplatonic Whiteheadian idea. I mean, there has there has to be real patterns to possibility that regulate how self organization occurs, so it regularly occurs the way it does, right? Uh, it, it, can I jump in there just really quickly because yeah. this is something I think is super cool. As an example. Did you know that cr- that the that the crab body form has evolved nine different times independently? Yep, yep. yep. Carcinization. Yep. So yep. there, there's there's some there's some for blood. balance. Blood has evolved independently multiple times. Eyes have evolved multiple yeah. uh, independently yep. multiple times. Yeah, and penises. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I don't know if you ever heard of the tail the tailed frog, right? Or mallards. Mallard uh, mallard ducks have a, a a penis that is you know not homologous it's analogous right it's evolved yeah. independently so yep. anyways um so there there there's there are places within that kind of uh landscape of potential adaption that have gravity let's say yeah also like saber-toothed cats is another really cool example yeah. yes and, and you, you, you could but you can see deeper things even 
right? Even in the inanimate world, like branching structures, right? And, and yeah, all, all kinds of things. And, and, and so, and there's lots of good work on this. So what, I, what, what I'm seeing is, and you even have it at the core of science. Yep. And I mean physics, because you have these two core theories and one is an emergence theory, which is quantum, because things are emerging out of pure probability. Yep. And then you have relativity, which is this, you know, it's, 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 it's a cosmic scale thing that is somehow emanating and constraining how everything is unfolding. And the two, yeah. and we don't know how to get those two to talk to yeah. each other. So, I mean, that's fascinating because we can think about like emergence and, and emanation, right? Or, uh... But can I make my point? Can I jump in here? Now? Yes, please do. For me, and that goes back to Plato and you see it all the way through and it comes to fruition and JP Marceau, I was the person to put JP Marceau onto, uh, John Scottus Eregina, right? That dialectic is not just a way of thinking. The relationship between emergence and emanation is dialectic. Because mm -hmm. right, it it, it 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 is a process. You, you like, the, and Jonathan, when 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 I press him, he he will. I, I believe he'll agree with what I say. You shouldn't think of it as emanation from here and it sort of down and it's it's more like they completely interpenetrate each other all the way through, right? And that the, the idea is that this is a dialectical process. Yes, and so that it's not just that we are bridging between like domains, like the mythological and the logical, when we're doing dialectic, we are actually emulating and participating in the way these two fundamental poles of existence are interpenetrating each other. That's what I mean when I say dialectic is way more primordial and profound. And, and, and to come back to Peterson, see Peterson, the way Peterson tries to do it to my mind is he, he, he brings in Jung but he, he makes it grounded like in science by grounding Jung in psychology, but then he invokes Jung, right, with all the mythology. But the thing about Jung is the narrative is in the service of the dialogue. What's ultimately going on in Jung is the dialogue between the conscious mind representing rationality and the unconscious mind re re representing the mythological. And the mythological throws up all this stuff, right? But it, it's the dialogue, right? It's the axis mundi is actually... The dialogical aspect is actually the primordial engine in Jungian psychology. We, we think about the archetypes, but that's not the thing. It's the ax that's why he calls it the axis mundi. It is the axis of the world is the dialogue. So uh, I just want to go back for a second because I mean, there's so much there, but you said, let's say from a traditional theological or ideal, like, um, uh, idealist perspective, yeah. right? The forms proceed. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And what you're saying is, you know, it's it's wrong to see sort of general relativity at the top and and quantum yeah. below it, and it's wrong to inverse it. Yeah. They, they have to have both sides of these two things. Interpenetrate and all the way through. So for some reason, what popped up for my in my mind is when Sam Harris and Peterson were dialoguing about God. Someone asked. If humans didn't exist, would God exist? Mm -hmm. For, so that to me is like that that idea of like you 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 can't quite get out of the the two things, 
and be able to see from a perspective where you can put one above the other in a way. Um, does that make sense? Do you see where I'm going with that? I think so. Uh, let me let me riff on that because I think the point of that question goes to the heart of what I was saying. Because yes. people are ultimately worrying that God is only only exists from a perspective of idealism, mm -hmm. and that ultimately, if there were no humans and no minds, there wouldn't be a God. I mean, that's that's the worry I was expressing when I'm saying if you go phenomenological, right? You you and then you either say, well, it's all just a projection of my meaning, mm -hmm. or you say, no, there isn't anything behind it, right? And it's it is just right all in some mind. And that's where you get the problems with solipsism and skepticism. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, I mean, I think, I think people, well, maybe like me, but also more like you, that, that, that those dangers within what Peterson is saying, I think they need to be really, uh, re I think that was a really good question that was asked. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I'm uninterested in Harris's answer because I think, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, because I don't think, it's an attempt at pure rationality where rationality has already been exhausted, right? And, it, and, and like you said about rationality rules, there's aspects of science that have already moved past this. Totally. Pure rationality. Totally. And, and, and like, you, like, like, like the invocation of truth without having an ontology that makes, like, where is, like, what do you think truth is? Like, do, do, do you, like it's, not, it's not physical. Like what do you like? Do, what do you think? Like what? Do you, what is it you're invoking? Right when you're invoking truth, right? So this is my frustration with with the conversation between Pajot and and rationality rules is that it seemed like they're they're invoking their own epistemologies and ontologies and aren't being explicit about how those are different and they're exactly. and whether they can reason within the other person's set of epistemologies and ontologies and then in particular I think that. That that rationally rules, Stephen. He mistakes. He he makes the mistake of assuming that 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 uh, Pajot's epistemology grounds out in the same way that his does. Yeah, and and and, and the and and the the epistemology. You know, uh, I, yeah. You know, the, the the fact that Jonathan ultimately has a Neoplatonic model of God in which God is no thing. Like yeah. that was clearly like he wasn't ready for that, right? It was like you, you yeah, yeah, the celebrity that that whole new atheist paradigm is is built off of of a, of of taking a, a the most kind of extreme fundamentalist evangelical Christian model of God, and like he, he says in that that like most people think about God in a certain way. But if you look at the poll data I did, I was like, that's not actually true. No, right? it's not true. And it's not true around the world. It's a very ethnocentric thing to say, right? And it's yeah. a very, it's a very Eurocentric, right? Uh, you know, think, very Eurocentric enlightenment thing to say. And it's, an, and it's it, it, the same thing with, uh, uh, with Dawkins, I think. But, but the point I was trying to make is, right? And the way, I, like, uh, this is very much a work in progress, and you know, the the, yeah, the whole dialectic di di into dialogos. But I see dialogos di di as that process in which we are, you know, the deeply platonic process in which we are genuinely wondering together, and we are we are moving out, and we are reculturing together, we are recreating together, 
uh, the, a, a new possibility for how we can conform to each other and to the world. We are making new cultural cognitive grammars possible. And I think that's the, that's the level at which we have to be operating, right? Because like, like what you saw with, with, with rationality rules and Jonathan, like there, there's nothing going on there. You see, when you debate, debate, which is the, our enlightenment model, debate, we, we, we realize that when we're just talking, well, all we're doing is social grooming. But when we don't agree, we, we are like, oh, wait, we, we can move to this level called debate. And there's where we can come to an agreement and then we can drop back down and share our lives together. But the problem is debate presupposes a shared normativity. And if you don't have a shared normativity, like you said, and a shared epistemology, a shared way in which you generate your epistemology and ontology, debate doesn't work. It, it, they just, it just, right? And so you can't, you have to go to another level. And that's where, that's where Chris and I are arguing, Chris Master Pietro, that's where we're saying dialectic into dialogos is. That's why you're seeing the emergence of all of these discourse communities in which they're trying to get back to, okay, can we get, can we gain access to the communing, communitas machinery? Because that's the basis for communication machinery. That's, that's the point I make. So it's interesting. Uh, one more thing: the the, right. the people, the neo, the 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 so the neo pagetians who are into post formal operations. So formal operations, when you can think like a scientist, the the way they talk about post formal operations, the, the one of the they talk about meta systemic reasoning, and they also talk about dialectical reasoning. They talk about this ability to right to move between right entire paradigmatic structures, right? And, and have this kind of flexibility. And, and so th this is this is sort of where I think my critique of Peter Peterson is, and also of this kind of conversation with Peugeot and, and, and rationality rules sort of also hits the same thing to me, which is, um, well, I, I think what he says at the beginning of Maps of Meaning is incredibly profound. You have to be able to construe the world in both ways, mm. right? You have to be able to think across both paradigms and you have to be able to sort of put them in dialogue. And what, what I see in that conversation is a, like, I'm going to ground here and I'm gonna ground over here. And then I'm going to, to, to assume the truth of truthfulness or the, of, of yeah. my ground and try to kind of impose it on your ground rather than saying, I'm actually just grounding in a different place. And like, because I feel like I, one could like, I, I would say that within a rational materialist worldview, I've never heard an argument for the existence of God that held any water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can also say that a rational materialist worldview results in a recognition that that what can be apprehended through that worldview, if, if you, and this is my critique of the new atheist, right? If you really go all the way with rational materialism, what you get is, you know, Gödel's incompleteness theorem and yeah. Yeah. there's there, there's always going to be stuff outside of this that I can't understand and this can't be all of my worldview and then then you can go over to phenomenology and you can say hey I can make an argument for the existence of God here and it's great um but and and that might that might change how you operate in the world and that can be really important and it can be profound and transformational but it doesn't allow you to then walk into the rational materialist world as a form for objects uh uh, or as a place of things and start making claims that are income, you know, incoherent. And that's, that's the thing that I haven't seen. And I think Peterson actually does get very close to this, 
but then he kind of he wavers at the brink it feels like to me right like well, he, he he because he 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 says it his worldview grounds out in darwinism right yeah does it that's just, that's rational materialism right and then he you know, darwinism he basically teleological yeah right and, and then that's like okay well then there's the pragmatic you know the the, the pragmatism that, that that forces you into into that um but if you're talking to the guys at liberty university etc they're not they're not accepting that ground no no right and and it feels like sometimes he's not he's not stating it and this is what i wanted jonathan to do with 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 rationality rules or vice versa just saying like this is my epistemology yeah and it's and it and it it allows me to think in certain ways and i can i like jonathan's a brilliant guy he can he can think in a rational material worldview and he can say hey this is what follows logically from these this chain of of thinking i just don't prioritize that frame above this frame and if you're willing to sort of say that it doesn't solve everything no but it re it resets the argument to the point where you're not necessarily talking past each other is what it feels like can well, happen. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Um, I think the place where we practice multi-perspectival integration, where we're not trying to win over the other person, but do exactly the kind of thing you say, where you can move between the perspectives and appreciate them, and perhaps even come to see them stereoscopically. Again, that's where I take that, I think, I take it that's what Plato's great dream was, to try and create that as a practice where people would be open to that. Um, that's how I interpret him, and that's how others interpret him. And for me, that jives with like the Kyoto School, where the Kyoto, I mean, the, so the Kyoto School has the advantage, right? And, and I actually, I, I, I have in the hallway, I was talking to Jordan and I was saying, you gotta read Nishitani's Religion and Nothingness. You're so concerned with nihilism and yet you haven't read to my mind the greatest book written uh, as the response to nihilism that's ever been written, right? And, 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 and that's what, you know, and the thing about the Kyoto School and Nishitani is the, you know, the nihilism of the West doesn't go deep enough because it, 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 it ends in nothingness and it can't get to nothingness. And no thingness requires progeny, requires this right stereoscopic fusion of these. And, and, and the way, and, and when you say, you said to me, well, I don't know about that. Well, well, I would say back to you, you know, what if the Buddhists have, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. They do talk, and, and, and I think John Scott is Ergina, you know, his, his theory of creation is, it is, right? You, you can cut to a place where you see them stereo. I'm, I'm sort of, I don't want to make an argument from authority, but I, I think I know what they're talking about, what that looks like. It's simultaneously trans-narrative and trans-argumentative. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the core thing I've been trying to get to in all of my work, because I agree with Nishitani that I, I think that, and the Neoplatonists like Eckhart, right? You know, I pray to God to, 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 to save me from God, right? To, right? <laughs> like that weird thing that he's doing there, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, and Suzuki saw this. He said, you know, the stuff I'm talking about, Eckhart's saying it. Here it is. Like he gets it. Uh, that's that. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting too passionate. But that's, that's what the whole, that's what I'm trying to get to. I mean, this, this is after I was done with Awakening from the Mini Crisis and largely because of criticisms made 
good ones, ones that I took mm -hmm. to heart. And I mean that, right? Yeah. From Paul and from Jonathan and from you, right? I've been trying, right, to say, well, no, we do. And, and Jordan Hall, too. He's a he, guy sends stuff, all these people, right? And it's like, yes, yes. I'm trying to get to that place where we know how to practice living, right, stereoscopically between these worlds so that we're looking, we're no longer fixated in an almost idolatrous fashion on the two of them and like burden's ass caught between them. We're actually got that mm, so that we can look through them and beyond them. That's what I'm trying to realize. Yeah. The... Sorry, that was just too. No, no, it's. I mean, I, it's just. There's so much there. It's such a rich. It's such a rich topic. I, the thought that came into my mind is: Is there, right? There's a couple things of, of, of Peterson's that 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 have come, that like have kept wanting to come back to. But sure. sure. One of them. You talked about the that the dial where dialogue is central to you, right? Yeah. And for some reason, I kept going back to in my head this way in which insight is generated or how knowledge is created in, totally. in Peterson's model, right? In Peterson's model, we start with exploratory behavior, right? And exploratory behavior then gives way to, um, to play base. I think it's play is next, right? Because you, you start repeating things and adding variation to them, right? Or no, it's imitation. Imitation is second, right? So then in play, then then there's ritual, drama, literature, et cetera, all those things. And then eventually there's articulated philosophy and then eventually science, which is really, really new, right? Yeah. Um, and and then, then you have your four levels of knowledge, right? Propositional, right? Yeah. It's like we, when we introduce knowledge now semantically and through science, we start at the propositional. But yes. all that knowledge sort of actually was generated from the bottom up. That's right. That's right. That's why we need a science that ha is the science of the missing kinds of knowledge so that we can rehome science within the scientific worldview. And I take that to be the mission of cognitive science explicitly. Yeah. So then, so what I, what I kind of get out of this is like Peugeot and Peterson are talking about narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about dialectic. I'm talking about body practice. Yeah. And it feels like we, we need, all of these things right we like you have to you, you you always will inhabit a narrative and so having the right kind of narrative is it's an inescapable problem mm. but the narrative itself is insufficient because it's a dogma when it doesn't have dialogue i like that way of putting it that's close right? to what I, I i would agree with yes and then at the same time I don't think the dialogue is sufficient either because what, what is revealed through dialogue, what is revealed through narrative must be made actionable and must be repeated in action for it to become deeply participatory and perspectival. Oh, I, I, I totally agree with that. I've always argued, and I've been yeah. explicit and repeated on this, that dialectic into dialogos is a meta-psychotechnology. It mm -hmm. always has to be in it always has to be homed in and emerging from and returning to an existing ecology of practices. I've been explicit about that from the beginning. Um, so my, my talking about the primordiality uh, of dialogue, right? It, it, right. And remember, I'm not just talking about interpersonal. I'm also talking about intrapersonal. Yeah, right? so 
I think I think of the relationship between the kinds of knowing as a dialogical relation, um, dialectical relation in a very powerful way, because they're communicating with each other and informing and transforming each other throughout. Um, but as a as the practice that I'm talking about, I, I, I have explicitly said that we should not. In fact, I when I'm teaching people, you shouldn't be doing this until you've done all these other practices, movement practices, mindfulness practices, virtue practices, like 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 McClellan does in the Wisdom of Hypatia. Like I taught the Wisdom of Hypatia course. You you shouldn't be doing this. The, no orphan to dialectic. That is a that is a deep and profound mistake. Totally, totally. Yeah. So. Um... If dialogue is essential, that that's kind of dualism, isn't it? Right? Because I'm so. No, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just I, I, playing with I, this because in order for in order for if 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 dialogue is primordial, then having two things that interact uh, is is I, primordial. I, I, yeah. I don't think that I, I so saying it's primordial is not to say that it's ultimate, right? The, those aren't yeah. the same. Because I said, I mean, dialogos. Well, well, sorry, I'm being too harsh. What I'm proposing is that dialogue goes, grounds us in the primordial and it prepares us, right, for the ultimate. Because the point of dialectic is, as I said, you're supposed to see through the opposites towards what they converge. It's supposed to return you to the one. You're supposed to actually be affording, like I said, the mystical ascent, the anagogic ascent to oneness. Yeah, I mean... So I mean, maybe I like I don't have quite the, the the philosophy background you have, obviously. So I'm my understanding of dualism or something may be limited. But what I for what, some whatever reason, what's popping into my head is um, the beginning of the Tao, De Ching, right? Yep. You know, the way that can be named is not the eternal way. Right. Um, the nameless is the mother of all things. Right. The named gives rise to the ten thousand things. But they're also one. It says so, yes. So, yeah. so there's there's a there's a one and two there, right? There's right. a there's the, the ultimate, and then there is within the ultimate there is potential, and and um, you know, Peterson would call it chaos and order, right? But you could almost look at it also as emanation and emergence, right? Totally, totally. And so the the the, the point is this: the point is to see the non-duality between the unity of all things in connection and the uniqueness of everything in its specific determination. And th that, the, like, there's a oneness uh, because you, like, the idea is on only the unending determination, all this, and uh, like all these unique things actually give you some sense of the full, sorry, this is a metaphor, power of the one, but it's also, the, that's the, that's the, you know, emanation down to determine to determine specific things, but these these specific things are all oneing. They're all self-organizing, and then they're forming self-organizing, and they're all you know they're all they're, they're they're all connecting, and that's also the unity of all things. Like, and we have this idea now, we especially right of the unity of uh, of the cosmos because it starts in a singularity and it's entangled and blah blah blah, right? And so that's exactly it. And the point about the point about dialogos is to get to that, right? It's to get to, I mean, and so you read through Plotinus, you read through Damasius, like the point is to realize ultimately that, to realize, not to think, but to realize, like to fully embody, fully in mind, fully embed, fully enact non-duality. Interesting. Non-duality is, 
is realizing the unification. But, but, but it almost goes back to I'm 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 going back to in my mind. Uh, complexity is unification and and diverge. Uh, and exactly, and exactly. But that's exactly it. That, and that's notice that complexification is is basically a dialogue between integration and differentiation. But it's not happening sequentially like a story. It's happening simultaneously and in parallel. And then the, what, what the Neoplatonists say is all, that is always what's present whenever there's intelligibility. There's always the differentiation and always the integration. And if you follow it both ways, you get to right the non-duality, the oneness that is the non-logical identity between the, the emanation and the emergence. And so, so for me, dial, dialogue and dialectic is the process of making your mind right reach into the primordial dialogue that you emerge from, but through dialectic, prepare you for the non-duality that is the, the best, to my mind, uh, because you see massive convergence in the, between the East and West, the best way of trying to put us into relationship, right, with what is ultimate, what is most real. So, um, so you have, uh, Divergence and integration, or what was the term? Differentiation and integration. Differentiation. Differentiation and integration. So if we go back to the, the Tao, right? Yeah. So the, the, the thing that the nameless would be sort of the integration, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's all the things together. Right? It's right? the circle. It's like you got the circle of the Tao, right? It's the circle. Yeah. And it makes it possible. And the, 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 the differentiation is the named, right? Right. And this the way, think, yeah. So we, you have a bit of the white and the black, and a bit of the black and the white to tell you that the integration and the differentiation are completely interpenetrating. And the reason why it's curved is that that is fluid and ongoing. And only all of that, and you're supposed to look through that to grasp what isn't captured by it, which is that which you only get the negative space of in the circle. The Tao is what you see through it. So then I have this sense that rational materialism tends to run up into it can it, it gets stuck in differentiation and Analysis. doesn't get back to unification yeah. right and this is like uh, again i I'm, i feel like i'm treading water that's above my pay grade here but um interesting metaphor <laughs> <laughs> mixing my metaphors uh as a as a as a as a movement teacher right the, the sense that I have is that over the last, you know, the, 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 that the Enlightenment, industrialization, uh, rational materialism, uh, they all sort of, they, at, at, the, at the very beating heart of what made a lot of this powerful and effective is reductionism. Right? Yes. The ability yeah. to break things down to pieces, take apart the atoms, right? Yeah. And then what we're discovering is that you can't ever understand the whole by just looking at the pieces right. and that uh, we have to have some theory of complexity. We have to have some, some, some understanding of these dynamical systems and how they operate in order to actually be able to do stuff well. So like when I look at the history of physical culture, I think of the eighties as sort of the apogee of, of isolationist physical culture. It's, it's just your aerobic system. It's just oh, your capacity. Right, right. So they're isolating just the muscles. It's just right, the Nautilus right. machine. Right. And then like the, in, 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 in the late 90s, really into the, uh, the aughts, and then uh, 
up to now is this point of reintegration of the body. Like CrossFit is the first sort of major sort of rethinking of the body as a generalist thing. And that fitness is the ability of all of these things to work together. Right, 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 right. right. And, you know, Mouvenat and Ido Portal and Parkour, like they're all sort of building these things, kind of re, re, rehabilitating the idea of the generalist. Right. And then, of course, my own work, I would say, is is taking that the furthest because I'm, I'm bringing these things uh, together in a different way where I'm understanding play and understanding all this stuff. Um, beautiful. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because it, it feels like, well, obviously, you and I are talking, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking because because you are seeing something that is aligned and that that connects with what i've seen right that the history of the body yeah. is somehow reflective of the history of the way that we've thought about the mind right? uh, yeah about cognition totally. yeah 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 and and that that um that that again we're we're the, the, these two themes that we've been talking about throughout this this like how do we look at bottom up and top down yeah right yeah. How do we see those two things in a way that that provides us a, a balanced point that you know allows us to see past the horror of an intrinsically meaningful world, right? Yeah, and the and horror. not get stuck in the horror of a intrinsically unmeaningful world. I think that's well put. The, one way that might help, and I realize we're probably I might be trespassing on your time, is to not to abandon but to transpose. The top down and like into the conversation with I had with Ian McGilchrist into the left and right, uh, because I mean we come with these hemispheres: the left that wants to go to the well-defined problem, do the analysis, pursue certainty, and, and right because it's it it evolves to deal with right with well-defined problems, and there's a lot of those, right? Uh, but we've got the right hemisphere that has to deal with you know predation and unexpected things, and it's wide open and it's connective and right. And here's the thing. Um, and I, you know, you know what I'm going to do here. The relationship between them is this weird communication, mutual constraining, mutual opponent processing thing. But what actually happens is insight is not in the left or right hemisphere. It's in shifting between them. It's in shifting between them and constantly moving between them. And, and, and so I think when we talk this way about the world and we can use this vertical metaphor we've been using about top down, bottom up, I think we should also put it into connection with you know, this horizontal thing in which we are moving between the, the left and right hemispheres, the ways of paying attention, the ways of orienting, the ways of adopting agency, of adopting role, right? And we can see that, right, there's a way of thinking of this that actually triggers this, that makes us much more insightful. And for me, that, that's the point. That, that, that's the point that, that I'm trying to get across. Is there a way of thinking about our ontology what I'm arguing is a dialogical way that not only gives us a really good account of how to bring these two, the, em the emergence and the eminence together, but it's also going to be provocative of transformative insight because that's what I actually want. I don't want just to recapitulate, right? An, an established ontology. I want to, I want, I want, I'm sorry. I want a dialogue. I want their, hey, the hey, ontology hey. to be triggering transform. I, I want Socrates. I want these discussions about the nature of the world, the nature of virtue, or right, or maybe Plato, right? 
that are going to lead to transformative insights, right? I, 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 the internal communication and, and communing has to completely jive with the external communication and communing. That's that's what I'm I'm trying to get at. And so I think what you're talking about is right. I think it's deeply pertinent because if I don't want you giving me an opportunity to, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm standing on a platform, but what you're, what I'm, I'm taking the opportunity you just afforded me to say, this is not ultimately about, you know, what's the right ontology. This is about, right. It's about, well, it's about anagoge. It's about trying to get the right sinking together of the most transformative insights with the most open way, the, the most access to the intelligibility of the world, because that will make people ultimately flourish. If the inner dialogue and the external, right? If those are most consonant and talking to each other, that's what I care most about. Can you just real quickly tell us what anagogy means? Which, specific oh, anagogy. So anagogy is the idea that uh, there's, two, there's two things I want. The idea of two meta drives. One is, and we we one is we have metaphors for this, right? I want inner peace, and I want to be I want to be in touch with reality. What inner peace means is the idea is I actually I'm not a single thing. I'm a system of systems, and these systems are often in conflict. They pursue different goals and different strategies, and they're in opponent relationship with each other because that's actually actually how you make an adaptive system. Um, so you know uh, you know uh, you know I want to lose weight. My famous, my you know, my famous. But there's the chocolate cake, and one part of my brain's going, you know, you evolved on the savanna. Eat as much glucose as you possibly can right now, right? And then there's another part of me saying, well, I know about health, and right, and right, and, and we all know this inner conflict, and and uh, you know, and that's that's a humorous example. It doesn't bother too many people, but inner conflict. Think of anxiety. We talked about it earlier, right? Between the essential self and the like, th that inner conflict can be debilitating and crushing and horrible. And most people, I, I would argue, have a profound kind of inner conflict between the phenomenological, mythological, and the scientific, right, yes. worldview. So they're riven. And what, what Plato argued is we want to somehow, and this is, and this is, Jung is basically the Plato of the psyche. Jung was trying to say what we need to do is properly figure out how to get these to have, and this is Plato's idea, inner justice, how to talk to each other so they can get the best mutual life together as possible. And then the idea behind that is when you do that, right, it basically, it, it, it really fine tunes, it really calibrates and coordinates your salience landscaping. You're much less liable to bullshit yourself. So you start to see the real patterns in the world. And that's the thing. We, we, so in addition to uh, inner peace, we want our inner peace to be caused by what's real, right? We, we, we want to be in contact with what's real. And so Plato's idea is you get the inner dialogue going and that affords the outer dialogue. But then the outer dialogue with the world where I am picking up on the real patterns, I internalize that. And that helps with the inner dialogue. And then the inner dialogue helps the outer dialogue. And that's what I mean earlier. What I was saying, we get, we get, we get the intrapersonal communication and communing working. So the extrapersonal, right, communing and communication work. And they have to be completely in sync with each other. And so yeah. I see all of that as a deeply, deeply dialogical process. It's dialogical this way, the anagogue, right? It's dialogical that way. And the relationship between them in anagogue is dialogical. So I was, I was thinking about the brain, right? The, the two, two hemispheres of the brain. I was thinking about the fact that we know that crawling improves the ability of the two hemispheres of the brain 
to communicate to each other. I totally, like, I totally think so. I totally think so. I don't think a lot of research has been done on climbing, but I suspect that it has very profound uh, impacts on the ability of the aspects of the self to integrate. That's a lot of what is sort of coming up for me here is that, um, so we have this, this potential for differentiation and this potential for sort of unification of that differentiation. And yep. we see this with motor processing, that essentially as an athlete becomes better, they're able to, they're able to actually have their body essentially have more pieces, more pixels, but be able to unite those pixels better within oh, patterns. Totally, totally. I totally, I totally see that. And, and that if we're back to this idea of like, well, you were talking about ontology, like, is this about just getting the right ontology? Right. And, and one, one other sort of uh, dichotomy or dualism that has, that has been popping into my head as we've been talking is the idea of being and becoming, right? Yep, yep. It's like, in some way parallel to the idea of, you know, the forms versus the reality. Plato, Plato totally, yep. Yeah, so, so in some sense, this, this is what it feels like to me, is that in some sense, uh, the quest to get the narrative right or to get the ontology right is kind of a quest to get the ground of being set correctly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, that's important, but it's incomplete because what how we experience being is always as a process of becoming. And if we don't have processes in dialogue and in physical practice that allow us to engage in becoming, then any model of being can actually become sort of tyrannical and stagnant. Oh, totally. And, and I think this goes back to, I mean, the language of, and this is platonic, right? Uh, and this is something I'm critical of Plato, right? Um, not only am I critical of the, the, the whole antibody thing, I'm also critical of, of, of uh, the priority of being over becoming, of, of Parmenides over Heraclitus, right? Her, right? Um, so I think what you're saying, and, 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 and it has both, it goes this way with existential import, and it goes this way with ontological import, is, I, you know, emanation is basically being. It, it, it is the eternal aspects of things. It is like the laws right? And emergence is the becoming. But as I've been arguing throughout, they are completely interdependent and interdefining. We, and, and, I, and I kind of, I don't like the axial two worlds way of trying to deal with this. So for all of my deep love of Plato, and it's profound, I don't like the way he separates, right? Here's the world of being, and here's the world of becoming, and this is the illusory world, and this is the real world. I think that's a fundamental mistake. And I think the recovery of the body is a recovery of the realization that those two are completely interpenetrating. This is a, maybe a little bit of a tangent and uh, I, I do have to go pretty soon because uh, I have a meeting here in, in, in five minutes, but uh, um, but I, I wanted to throw this at you because I think it's interesting. Um, Christianity, right? We talked about yeah. a, earlier the idea that Christianity sort of um, also sort of renounces the body. Not initially, because it has the incarnation, right? And that, that's, that's the thing that I wanted to bring up. Like, I, like one of my employees is a very, you know, devout Christian. It comes from, uh, he went to school at Oral Roberts. And he's very, very insistent on the idea that, that, that what Christ is talking about is the physical, like the physical resurrection of everybody, right? That, that, that the spirit is not separable from the physical. And, um, 
And so this original Christianity has this, this aspect of, of, of bringing the body back into the conversation. Totally. And, totally. But, and yet somehow it continues, to, it seems to continue to get lost throughout the history of Christianity. Well, and part of that is, and, 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 you know, and this is where I want to be critical. I mean, that's, that's kind of Neoplatonism's fault. And so for all of the way in which I think Neoplatonism is really valuable, important, and really lifted Christianity up into something, I think Neoplatonism, I mean, uh, Porphyry begins Plotinus's biography by saying, Plotinus always behaved like someone who is ashamed of having a body. That's the first line of Plotinus's biography. It's like, yeah, it's like, then that whole aspect, uh, and, and I, think it was a, I think it was a fundamental confusion of, I think they were trying to talk about modal confusion between the having mode and the being mode or the becoming mode. Um, maybe we should call it the being becoming mode. But anyways, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, and then they got caught up in, in, in the body. And then of course, Augustine made it worse with his sex, sex addiction, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, Aquinas actually criticizes Augustine. Uh, and he says, well, like, what's the point of the resurrection if we, if we can be disembodied spirits floating around with God? Like, why are we dragging these bodies around? Because he, he was an Aristotelian. He thought that you couldn't have. And that was Aristotle's great critique, too, right, of Plato, is you, can't, you shouldn't be trying to separate the two together. But you see, even, even Aristotle, Aristotle gives priority to the form over the matter. He gives priority to the emanation over the emergence. He's still a Platonist in that sense. I want to get past that. We should, yeah. stop, we should stop trying to prioritize either one of them. I like the idea of the left and right because yeah. when we... I think there's an inherent psychological prioritization of up over down. Yeah. If we if we think as an emanation and emergence yeah. this way, then that that will automatically sort of place emanation as the superior of the two. Of course, we even have left and right, right? If we put something on the left, it is sinister, you know, sinister and right-handed right is is dexter. But that's what I was trying to use the the stereoscopic vision mo metaphor, right? Yeah. Of looking through the left and the right visual fields. Right to yeah, yeah yeah so we can see something so we get a we get an we get like the third dimension we, but instead of it being just perceptual not not excluding the perceptual it has to be perceptual and ontological depth perception totally mutually reinforcing each other so uh, we we need to to wrap up now um, but this <laughs> has been incredibly rich I think this has been one of our richest dialogues I think it's interesting because. Um, my own interest in fantasy fiction in the past, I have like thought of as kind of a uh, speculative fiction as somewhat whimsical, right? Somewhat lacking in platonicity. And yet I feel like, um, you know, and I thought this conversation would be not necessarily as forwarding our overall dialogue as some of the other things that we've talked about. I mean, it seems like it provided uh, grounds for an extremely deep conversation. And I'm yeah. curious. I'm, cu I'm just curious to hear your comment on that before we wrap up. What is it about these stories that actually provides us? Why do we think that they're that they're unserious? And yet, why do they have so much attraction? Why why can they be the grounds of something like the dialogue we just had? Yeah, I think I think they're well. I mean, we've talked we've talked a lot about how. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to bridge between the past and the future. I see them as inherently trying to give us a stereoscopic vision um, that we've been talking about. Um, and in that sense, 
I mean, people, people make this point about science fiction, which is really, I think, a really good point that science fiction is like other, is unlike other fiction in that speculative fiction, science fiction, the main character is the world, right? And it's mm -hmm. where we're doing world building. And that, so I see it as what I, what I think I've been arguing for here, which is I want to get past the nostalgia uh, 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 right for the, the the mythopoetic world, and I and I want to get past the 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 horror of the dystopic uh, rational rational purely well truncated rational. Uh, I think the the notion of rational is too small, but the, the rational empiricist world, right? The rational materialist world, uh, because what I want to do is see through them to the possibility of world building, which is what I think you need, right, in order to make right, narrative possible for us again. So I think where we are attracted to these stories is because they put us in touch with something that has always hovered between myth and science, which is cosmology, right? The, right we're trying to build cosmo a cosmology. Um, and that is in, in some ways something we've been talking about here for the very from the very beginning. And we're in the, I think we're in the very, in history unique position that our cosmology has to, it can't be just mythologically generated like they were in the past. And it can't just, our science doesn't seem to be capable of giving it to us. And we need something that puts us back into that space again. I think that's what science fiction does for us. That's beautiful. There's something you said that was really interesting to me. You said world building. Yeah. Right? And, and world building, I thought ontology as process. Yes, as practice too. Like, so the point about world building is it's not the same as a worldview, right? Your world, build, uh, the point of a cosmology is you can live in it, mm -hmm. right? Right. That, that, that's what, that, that's what makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, that's what uh, uh, Campegna, uh, the guy who wrote Technique and Magic, I'm just reading it right now. That's, that's, that's his preferred term. And I think that's right. Um, and I talk about, like in the series, I talk about how we went from a cosmos to a universe and right but it's it, but see you, but see how it looks what did sagan name his series he didn't name it universe he named it cosmos because he wanted to somehow awaken in us a capacity to live in it in wonder and appreciation yeah let's stop there i think that's okay. good yeah how do we reawaken the capacity to live in the world uh with wonder and Wonder, what was the other one? Wonder and imagination? Appreciation. Wonder and appreciation. appreciation. And I mean both senses of that word, right? Which is a profound valuing and a profound understanding. Excellent. And, and we tell these stories because in some sense they can be powerful tools. Maybe yes. we'll have another dialogue where we talk about how those tools can are being misused in a lot of ways. Because I don't think that a lot of what's coming out of Hollywood is really... No, trying no. to utilize this medium to achieve what it perhaps was originally intended for. Oh, it's it's uh, often a horrible mongrel. We, we've got pre-axial Greek gods running around with post-axial, post-modern sensibilities. And 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 and, 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 and the, like, I, like I said to Damien, the, 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 like, my friend Leo, Leo Ferraro, the people, like they can accept that Superman can fly and shoot out heat beams from his eyes and they can also see x-ray vision, even though that's not how vision works at all. But the fact that he could be a moral agent, well, they just don't buy that. 
That's why they like Batman. It's like, how, like, how, where did you get to where, you know, it's okay that he flies and he has heat vision, but he can't be a moral agent for you. Like what? That's, well, there's something that's happened within science fiction and fantasy fiction uh, in my experience where it's become incredibly cynical. And some of that art is great, but the fact that it's all cynical and that not being cynical is sort of um, perfectly parallel with being low quality says something very interesting about the current cultural moment. I'm also interested in the way in which which the the current politics and particularly left-wing politics are being transposed into our 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 secondary worlds in yeah. very interesting yeah. ways so yeah. uh yeah we'll have to chat about it more but um for now i, I really do have to go because i expect friends to be knocking on the door any moment now um but john this is wonderful it's always so good to talk to you and um this early. yeah 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 i mean i i think it would be great to at some point uh, uh uh send a link to this to damien so he could take a look at it too um, yeah yeah, yeah. That, this is truly wonderful i really enjoyed this a lot I wouldn't mind putting this up on my channel at some point too. Yeah, let's do it. And um, uh, I, I'd love to hear how you go with uh, the the second apocalypse series. I'd love to have a dialogue with that if you if you're able to get through reading. And I know you're well, a very busy. Yeah, you get yeah. A but I like that. I like that the way you explained that. I thought that was really, really attractive. Really, the way he's got the two horrors. Um, it's it reminds me of how Buddhism tries to get you. Uh, it exposes you to the horror of mortality and then the horror of immortality. So that only in experiencing both horrors can you come to really live. So it reminds me exactly of that. That's great. Okay, I gotta go. Take care, my Love you, man. Talk soon. Love you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.